Good morning, church. Our passage this morning comes from Exodus chapter 26, 1 through 10, and 31 through 37. If you're using the uh, Pew Bible in front of you, our text can be found on page 66. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops shall make one, fifty loops shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another, and you shall make fifty clasps of gold, and couple the curtains one to, other, one to the other with clasps, so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shall you make. The length of each curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple the five curtains by themselves, and the six curtains by themselves. And the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is the outermost in on one set and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is the outermost in the second set. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine twined linen. It shall be made with the cherubim skillfully worked into it, and you shall hang it in four pillars of acacia over the laid with gold, with hooks over gold on, on four bases of silver. You shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. The veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. You shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. This is the word of God. Good morning. We are in the series in the book of Exodus. This is the story of Israel's redemption. Redemption meaning a rescue out of, God rescuing them out. It says from slavery to glory. The first half of Exodus shows us the God who delivers his people. He delivers them. The second half of Exodus shows us the God who dwells with them. 
What does it look like? That's the glory part. So from slavery, I'm rescuing, I'm delivering to glory. What does it look like for God to live among them? The people right now are camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses, their leader, has gone up the mountain, all the way up the mountain to meet with God. And God is speaking to Moses now. We're in Exodus 26. God has already given Moses the Ten Commandments. He's given him the Book of the Covenant, right? The law that would bind the relationship between God and Israel. And now in Exodus 20, chapter 25 to 31, God provides detailed instructions or blueprints for how to build this structure called the tabernacle. Six chapters of instructions here, and then at the end of Exodus, four more chapters to tell us they did exactly what God said, and it repeats all the ways that they are to build this tabernacle. 25% of Exodus is devoted to this structure. I know for some of you, you can't think of anything less relevant to the needs and struggles of 21st century than a structure that existed 3,000 years ago and is now obsolete. And I can appreciate that. I think if I wasn't a pastor and I walked into church today and I heard the preacher say, let's analyze the tabernacle, I'd probably be longing for lunch as well. <laughs> the tabernacle, a picture of heaven on earth. What I want you to understand and what we are going to keep trying to remind you of as we go through this part of Exodus is that the tabernacle ultimately teaches us about God. And that's why it's important. It teaches us what he's like, what does he want from us, how do we relate to him. And understanding those things are not just massively important, they're supremely important. We talked about last week about how the tabernacle is the place that God would, would call home. He says that in chapter 25. This is going to be where I dwell, where I, where I have my home. This, and we considered the idea of home, that we all have this longing for a place to call home, a place of, of security and stability and intimacy. And even if those things don't, uh, you don't experience those things in a home right now, we still, we still want that. And even if you do experience those things at home, you still feel like something is missing. Because we live in a broken world. Which means that as much as we want to create a place to call home, we still feel displaced. We still feel like we're not fully home. We feel like this really isn't our home. You know what I'm saying? J.R.R. Tolkien, the writer of The Lord of the Rings, once wrote this. He famously said this, quote, We all long for Eden, meaning the Garden of Eden. We all long for Eden, and we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature, at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most humane, is still soaked with a sense of exile. Do you understand what he's saying? That we all live with this sense of homesickness, this longing for a world where there is no injustice, where there is no racism, where there is no disease, where there is no broken relationships, and where there is no death. That this ache for a world where all is right is, is deep within every human being, and it's this longing for Eden. 
to live in the presence of God. That's why the Garden of Eden was so glorious. It's what we were created for. It's a longing for heaven on earth. And so as we keep studying the tabernacle, I want you to understand that God is seeking to restore what Eden, what was lost at Eden. That ever since we rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, God in his surprising grace has continued to pursue us, revealing himself to us, seeking to make his home among us. And so the tabernacle is this picture of heaven on earth. It's not the final picture, but it's an important picture of God's revelation of who he is. Let's look at what, what, how it reveals God and a picture of heaven on earth. Lesson number one that we learn in chapter 26 of Exodus, delight in the God of humility. Delight in the God of humility. So God gives, starts giving Moses the instructions for the tabernacle in Exodus 25, and he begins with the furniture. The Ark of the Covenant, the table for the bread, the lampstand. These are the most important pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. Now in Exodus 26, we get a description of the structure itself. And the word tabernacle means dwelling place. It was to be the place where God would meet with his people. He would dwell with his people. He would be at home with his people. Look at chapter 25, verse 8 again. It says, God says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. The tabernacle was meant to be a piece of heaven on earth. Meaning, if heaven is where God is, right? That it's the, this is the dwelling place of God. And so God would come down and live among his people. And in a real sense, he would then bring heaven down to earth with him. And that's why God calls Moses to follow these exact instructions, whether it's wool, wood or metal or, or cloth or blue or purple or red yarn, all the different things he's, he's doing. It's, it's meant to be a picture. This is a picture of my home. This is a picture of heaven on earth. In fact, the book of Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5 says the, the tabernacle is, quote, a copy and shadow of heavenly things. So it was an earthly building, yes. It was a physical reality designed to teach heavenly realities. Now, chapter 26, we read verses 1 to 14. We read 1 to 11, 1 to 10 maybe. Verses 1 to 14 provides details about the curtains. If you read those verses, you'll, you'll read, repeat over and over the curtains of the tabernacle. And it's easy to get lost in the details. Here's what I want you to understand. That the entire tabernacle complex or structure was compri comprised of a system of curtains and frames. Which was overlapped and interlocked with one another. And these curtains and frames formed this small building. And if you go online, you'll find all sorts of pictures of what this structure looked like. Here's a, an example of what the tabernacle could have looked like. So you have the kind of the, the outer court. And like a fence around that, the outer court, the, the, the spacing would have been 150 feet long, 75 feet wide. And then you have the actual tabernacle structure, which is that building right there, and they've kind of opened it up so you can see what's inside of it. And in there, the dimensions of that building is 45 by 15 foot. 45 feet by 15 foot. And then the most holy place was a 15 foot by 15 foot square. And that's where they would put the Ark of the Covenant. 
And it would be covered by multiple layers, four layers, right? Goat skin, ram's hair. Think about what this teaches about God. This is going to be the home of the king of kings, the king of the universe. He could have demanded a palace or a castle, and he could have rightfully demanded that, but he didn't. Instead, he instructs them to build him a tent. Have you ever been in a tent? I don't care for tents, period. I don't care how nice they are. I've been in very nice tents. It's still a tent. The Israelites at this time, two million Israelites gathered around the foot of Mount Sinai. They're living in tents as they journey on from there to the promised land. They're going to be living in what? Tents. And God says, I'm going to dwell in a, in a tent alongside of you. This shows the humility of God. Why would the God of the universe choose to live in a structure smaller than this little area here, way smaller than our own church? Does that make any sense? In the New Testament, there's one place which talks about the heart of Jesus, where Jesus says, this is my heart. And he describes it for us in Matthew 11, 28 and 29. And he gives this invitation. He says, come unto me, all you who what? Labor and are heavy laden and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Then Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. That's the word humble. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The tabernacle was a window into the heart of God. God is, and I don't mean this sacrilegious, God is humble. He longs to live among his people like his people in a tent. This is, as theologians are called, this is the, the condescension of God. He comes down to us and meets us like us. The incarnation of Jesus reinforces this humility. In Jesus is the fullness of deity dwelling bodily. And yet what? He's an ordinary man. He gets cut. He has to go to sleep. He has to eat. He's born in poverty, in a stable Again, not in a palace. He lives an ordinary life. Look, God is always coming down to live among us like us. All throughout the Bible, from Eden to the tabernacle to the temple to Jesus to the Holy Spirit to the new heaven and new earth, God is making this point abundantly clear. I want to live with you. I want to make my home with you. I don't know what you walked in here carrying today. Maybe there's guilt or shame because of some sin in your life, whether it's past or present. Maybe you're struggling to believe why a holy God would ever want to be at home with you because you don't feel worthy. Or maybe it's just that the trials of life have been so discouraging, so defeating that you're wondering, maybe God's at home with other people, but he's certainly not at home with me. He's certainly not at home in our marriage. He's certainly not at home in our family. He's certainly not at home with me at my college. He's not at home with me. How could God be at home with me when I'm experiencing so much pain and suffering? The tabernacle is this visible reminder in history 
for the people of Israel and even for us to instruct us and show us unequivocally that neither our sin nor our suffering can stop God from making his home among us. The Israelites are far from perfect. They doubted God when he tried to rescue them out of Egypt. They grumbled against God when they were in the wilderness. In just a few chapters, they're going to build a golden calf and say, this is our God. He gives them all the instructions about the tabernacle and they build this dumb calf. God knows this and yet what does he do? He says, I'm going to still make my home among you. This is humility. This is love. God knows that they will suffer in the wilderness. He knows they're going to experience trials and yet where will he be? Right in the middle of their camp. Right at the center of their lives. As Christians, remember this. We have something even greater than the tabernacle. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We have the dwelling place of God with us through the unity of us and Christ, the presence of God making his home with us, in us. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's not just pie in the sky, that's reality. He's with you and will never leave you. He's at home with you and will never leave you. There's never a no vacancy sign on your heart. Wait, there's never a vacancy sign. That's not in my notes. Forget whatever I just said. (laughs) He's at home in your heart. Delight in this reality, Christian. Our great God has humbly come down to make his home with you because that's been his desire all along. Lesson number two, don't just delight in the God of humility. Be in awe of the God of holiness. We also see that in this chapter. The tabernacle was to be built according to these specific instructions. In fact, the tabernacle was located in the center of the camp. Numbers tells us that. And it would be seen by everyone. And so literally, Israel had this God-centered camp. That's theologically significant. The Israelites would live in communion with God, and he would be at the center of their lives. And the design of of chapter 26 shows us there's this entrance, this curtain in the very beginning, this entrance to the outer court. You can see it here. There's an entrance on the outer court. That's a curtain. He tells them exactly how to make it. And then there's another curtain to enter into the holy place, the, the, the tabernacle structure itself. And then there's another curtain where you enter into the most holy place, where only the high priest could enter once a year. There's a way into God's presence. He's telling them, there are curtains. There's a way into my presence, but it wasn't open to anyone. You couldn't just pop in unannounced at the tabernacle to talk to God. The curtain at each entrance signified there's a barrier. Verse 31, and you shall make a veil. Verse 35, another veil. The inner and outer veils to the holy place and the most holy place. God is saying, I am truly present. But most Israelites would never be able to enter fully into my presence. This was the dilemma. God was near, but he was set apart. God is humble, yet God is holy. The tabernacle was designed to reveal God's nature. He says, I'm here. You can come to me through the priest as a mediator. He stands in your place, and yet at the same time, you must keep your distance. Look at verse 31 again. The veil, 
to the holy place. You shall make a blue and purple and scarlet yarn. So it's beautiful and fine twine linen. And it shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. In other words, they would weave a design of cherubim or angels into these veils, into these curtains. I mentioned last week how the cherubim are the angels that God placed on the east of Eden when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden and they were to prevent anyone from entering. They're holding flaming swords. The cherubim are warrior angels. And so here, right in the tabernacle, there's this, 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 um, this echo back to Genesis 3. In the tabernacle, angels are still guarding the way back to God. This idea of separation and holiness. We see this in Mount Sinai. There's three parts to Mount Sinai, just like three parts to the tabernacle. There was the part at the bottom, the bottom zone. Everyone could gather at the very bottom of Mount Sinai and you're okay. But don't go beyond this perimeter. That's the outer courts of the tabernacle. And then the elders could go partly way up with God. That corresponds to the holy place in the tabernacle. And then at the top of the mountain, there's one person who could go all the way up. That was where God himself would descend and he would meet with Moses. And that corresponds to the most holy place, the holy of holies. In Exodus 19, the limits on the mountain were placed, God says, to protect the people from his holy presence. He says if they overstepped the boundaries, they would be destroyed. Which means the cherubim on these curtains were not to protect God from us. They were to protect us from God. The curtains, the cherubim are meant to communicate clearly, keep out. Do you see the problem here? Can you feel the tension? The tabernacle was God's unique the one place on earth where he would be at home among his people and it communicated his heart to be with them. That's been his heart all along. And yet, just like Mount Sinai, that it also communicates he is inaccessible. I'm accessible. There's a table for bread. I want fellowship with you. I'm accessible. Uh, I want to I have fellowship with you and my glory is going to come down. I'm literally going to live there. And yet, there's this four-inch curtain As Jewish writings tell us, there's images of warrior angels. Why? Because sinful people cannot survive an encounter with the holy God. God was was home, truly home. He was so close and yet so far away. The tabernacle was meant to show the supreme holiness of God. The holiness, meaning he's pure, he's perfect, he's set apart. No sin can enter into his presence because he's sinless. And the Israelites, they wanted to know God intimately, but they knew there was this separation because he is holy and they were not. And only the priest could enter the holy place to change the bread out and, and, to, and to make sure the lights are on, but only the, the high priest once a year could enter the most holy place. And that was after a blood sacrifice to make atonement for the people's sin. We don't have a tabernacle today, physically. But do you still have an appreciation for the holiness of God? Do you you have any awe of God? Or did you casually come in here today thinking, yeah, I'll do this on Sunday, I'll do this today. God, you're kind of lucky I'm here. I mean, look, it's raining outside. I'm one of the few that came. Do you treat God too trivial? 
Now, some, some pulpits, some churches treat God as a genie in a bottle. Where's my wishes, God? I'm going to name it and claim it. No, that's not who he is. He's not the big guy upstairs. He's not Santa Claus keeping track of who's naughty and nice so he can reward and punish. Right? That's not him. These are all wrong views of God. Our God is holy. He lives in unapproachable light. Hebrews says he's a consuming fire. So for thousands of years, the people of God saw that God wanted to dwell with them in the tabernacle. They saw this. They knew this. But his presence was guarded. Access to him was limited. And the only way to approach his presence was through this sacrifice, this blood sacrifice. So for now, for a period of time, his holiness had to be veiled. It had to be covered and protected to protect us from him. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story. Lesson three for us today, live as the, holy, as the humble, holy dwelling of God. And by that I mean individually and collectively. God wants a relationship with his people. God desires to live among us. But we have sin in our hearts. We continue to rebel against him. We break God's commands all the time. Ever since Eden, when there was truly heaven on earth, there's something in us that's bent towards rebelling against God, right? We reject God's law. What do we do? We live as self-sovereigns, right? Who's the ultimate authority? I am. If you didn't know that, that's every message you're getting on every platform you have. And if so, if you hear that there is another authority bigger than you, higher than you, and if that rubs you the wrong way, you should already know you're feeling the effects of this culture. We all long for home, but we're bent on destruction. We're bent on trying to find home away from home. We're the prodigal son. I can make it without you, dad. Just give me all your stuff. The reason why there's evil out there is because there's evil where? In here, in our own hearts. We long for home, but we've been living east of Eden ever since. But God never quits on humanity. He never quits on you. The tabernacle is a picture of heaven on earth. God's presence living among us, but keep at a distance. And then Jesus comes along and it says in John chapter 1, the gospel of John, verse one, chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is the word tabernacle. I said it last week. It means tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. He lived among us. And it says, and we have seen his glory. John is a genius. He's trying to point us all the way back to this tabernacle. How can heaven come down to earth? How can there be glory and yet humility? How can God tabernacle truly among us in the fullest way? Well, he does so in the person of Jesus, fully God and fully human. And then John, Jesus lives this perfect life in John 14, just before he's arrested, just before he's about to be crucified on a cross, unjustly, he tells his disciples this, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself 
that where I am, you may also be. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you in God's home. The word a place and house there, in my father's house, that's the word home. And Jesus says, look, I am the way to that home. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. Jesus would the next day be crucified on a cross for crimes he never committed. And we could look at that and go, oh, it's the worst day ever, and it was. And yet it was the best day ever because it was God's preordained plan. God is, holy, he's sin- God is holy and we're sinful. There's a separation and only a blood sacrifice could, could, could a priest enter God's presence in the tabernacle. Well, listen, on the cross, Jesus died the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. When Jesus died, he took all of our sin and bore all of our guilt and shame that we deserve for our rebellion against God. When Jesus died on the cross, something incredible happened. It says in Matthew 27 that as he's dying on the cross, right, there's still a temple at that time. The tabernacle had graduated to a temple and there were still veils, still curtains, still only once a year. Holy, you know, the top priest can only go in once a year. Still, everybody else, you're left out. There's an inaccessibility to God to prevent Sinful people from entering and encountering a holy God. Again, home so close yet so far. We all all long for it, but it's blocked. And then Jesus is dying on the cross, and it says this. When Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Why from top to bottom? Because it had to be a miracle. Nobody could do it. Nobody could claim, oh, that priest, I know, I know Hercules, he's pretty strong. Did he do it? No. No, even Hercules couldn't, couldn't rip a four-inch wide curtain. God was doing something miraculous. God was saying, my son's sacrifice, the holy for the unholy, his holiness taking on your unholiness. It's a once and for all sacrifice. And when he dies, he tears that, tears that veil apart that divides us from God so that now we can enter into the presence of God. This doesn't happen by obeying God's law. We can't do it. It happens by admitting that you have sin, I have sin, and it, and it happens by then turning to Jesus in humility and in faith, saying, Jesus, I believe you are the one who died to make a home for me with you. That's how we can have intimacy, access to God's presence. No longer does God ever say, keep out. You might feel unworthy because of your sin, You might be discouraged because of broken dreams or life's trials, but please hear me. Don't allow your feelings to speak louder than the sacrifice of Jesus. God's message to us in Jesus is welcome home. And if you feel like the prodigal, I am so messed up. I can never, and the father runs to you and you can give him all the excuses in the world, but his his message is, I'm gonna throw a party if you come home. You coming home? Because I want you home. Do you need to welcome Jesus into your life today? Do you need to say, Jesus, you are the answer to my deepest longing for home? Do you need to come to the point where you say, 
I believe that Jesus can give peace and security and rest even as we journey this broken world. What about us as Christians? When we find our home in Jesus, he changes us. He helps us become a picture of heaven on earth. It was Jesus, right? Tabernacle, temple, then Jesus. And now it's us, individually and the church. Individually. Let me talk about that for a minute. How does Jesus change us? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Your body is the temple, is the tabernacle of God. You physically, you personally. This should humble us first. We should grow in humility. The more we understand God Almighty makes his home in us, we should stand amazed. How could God love us so unconditionally and so undeservedly? It should humble us. We should grow in humility, not arrogance, not pride, but humility. And it also should grow us in holiness. The more we understand how God makes his home in us, the more it will compel us to say, God, you should be glorified in my body. I was dead, I was enslaved to sin, and you redeemed me, you bought me with the price of your precious son, and so I'm gonna turn away from sexual immorality. I'm not gonna live with my girlfriend or boyfriend. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna engage in greediness like everyone else around me. I'm not gonna lie just to get ahead. I'm not gonna be selfish. I'm not gonna be a jerk. I'm not gonna gossip. Why? Because I've been bought with a price and I am now the temple of God. We need to let Jesus have full reign as he lives his home in your heart. And you say, I'm not there yet. Okay, but let, let him open the doors up to every room. There's no closet that you can say, Jesus, this is not yours. Let him transform that area of struggle and we can invite each other into the battle for that. That's what community is for. Secondly, not only individually, but collectively as a body, as a church, Paul says in the second letter to Corinth, for we, that's not just me, that's us. We are the temple of the living God. As God said, and then he quotes the Old Testament, I will make my dwelling, my home, among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. We are the dwelling place of God, the church, not the building, us. How does Jesus change us? He reminds us that this world is not our ultimate home. He gives us an eternal perspective. Just like the Israelites were on this journey in the wilderness to the promised land, we are on a journey through the wilderness of this life to the promised land, which is heaven. This is not our ultimate home. So then how shall we live? Jesus makes it very clear. You as the temple should live as disciples who go and make disciples of all ethnos, all nations. That's our core calling. Make disciples of all nations. I prayed for a people group this morning and some of us should go, should I go? Should I leave everything and go for the sake of Christ, for the glory of his name among the nations? Some of us, including me, should ask that regularly. Should we go? Should we give up this temporary home and make disciples so that other people know that they can have an eternal home with God? 
And all of us should have the mindset that making disciples even right here is our highest calling. Let me ask you, how much time, how much energy, how much of your resources do you devote to building God's home, the church? Your career's going well, great. Family's doing well, great. Or career's not going well, I'm sorry. Family's a wreck, I'm sorry. I know what both of those are like. And yet, this is the core mission, to devote our time, our resources, our talents to building his kingdom through the local church. Look, when we take, talk about taking care of our physical homes, you can say, oh, I, I, take, I, clean our ho- I clean my house, I clean the bathroom, I clean the kitchen, I want to make sure I have a decent place to live. But we are the dwelling place of God. Are we investing in discipling others? Look, Jesus can give you the strength, the motivation, the courage, and the love to do it. Are you using, let me ask you another question, are you using your earthly home to build God's kingdom? Like practically, are you opening up your earthly home as a space, as a place to welcome others and make disciples? Or is your home off limits? I'll go to church, but church isn't coming to me. Or are you so busy with your family schedule, your work schedule, there's no time for community, no time for mission? We have to, we we are the temple. God, God, the picture of heaven on earth is us, so will people see heaven on earth or not? Or will we shut the door, inaccessible? If you're struggling to live as the holy dwelling of God, let me motivate and encourage you by reminding you of our future. If you're wondering if it'll be worth it, if you're wondering whatever sacrifices you've had to make, whatever wounds you've incurred by living in this broken world, let me read this to remind you as we close. Revelation 21, this is the end of the story. Don't you love how God lets us read to the end of the story now? We don't have to wait. Who's gonna win? We don't don't have to wonder. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is our future. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Church, one day Jesus will return and make his home fully and forever with us, and it will be glorious. This isn't pie in the sky, this is our blood bought reality. This is what the tabernacle and the temple and the church are meant to picture right now, heaven on earth. This is our hope that one day Eden will be restored better than before. We'll live in God's presence fully. No more suffering, no more sin, no more futility, just beauty and righteousness and satisfaction and joy and glory. The best is yet to come.
That's the home we were created for. That's the home we all long for. And that's the home, if you're a believer, you were destined for. With our humble and holy God. Is that your hope this morning? Are you resting and rejoicing in the finished work of Christ? Let's pray. Father, we come to you, our humble and holy God, seeking ourselves to grow in humility and grow in holiness, knowing that this only happens through Jesus, with Jesus, by Jesus. In him we live and breathe and have our being. We invite you this morning, Lord, to, to work in our, in our very souls. Show us your beauty and glory. Show us your grace that we might then be transformed more and more into your image because we know that's the, that's the vision. Beholding Christ and being transformed into your image from one degree of glory to another. Help us even now as we prepare to take communion to be encouraged by these things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.